Hey viewers, hey listeners, this is Andrew Luke Oldham inviting you to another episode of our pod chat, Sounds and Vision, where we all sit and chat with someone that we all know about things that edutain us, based on entertain and educate. One of my favorite phrases from the British writer Graham Greene. Now, early in this series, we featured a talk I had with Mr. Rob Schwartz, who is the chair of the TBWA New York Advertising Group. He's he's an advertising mate. He's like everybody in Mad Men, except the girl with the red hair and the company figure, Hendrickson or something, bit bit of a Swedish, I can't remember. Oh, I love that show, man. He's everything out of that and Ben-Hur and the best of everything with Stephen Boyd and what makes Sammy run. I mean, what makes Rob run? (laughs) Kind of slightly higher tone thing than Sammy, I hope. But, you know, mainly he's a guy that I have the pleasure of knowing because if you spend time with him, which you are about to, you are kept on your game and you will get little hints and ticks of ways to improve your game. Apart from that, you think you're at Universal Studios in the 50s because they all wear black suits and life is pretty rum. It's fun. And I like to have my game improved. Now, not enough of you listened to the particular pre-COVID... Uh, well, we had that pre-COVID chat with Rob for many reasons, but also because at the time, Charlie Watts, the Rolling Stones drummer, had just died. And I could not find the words, any words that were appropriate that I would wish to share with someone who was not part of that original 1963 club into which we were all born. But in this previous chat with Rob Shores, we had covered drummers like Shelley Mann, we covered Charlie Watts, and that conversation flowed so much, that was one of the reasons we wanted to share it with you. Also, the fact that it would remind you of a lot of things that were going on pre-COVID. This chat is more recent. It's in the middle of these COVID times. And as Rob and I look back on the chat we had then, pre-COVID, and we uh, try to say, all right, what's the difference, man? So please join me right now for a chat, a pod chat, with Mr. Rob Schwartz. Good morning, good evening. This is Andrew Lou Golden coming to you with Sounds and Vision once more. You heard in the previous weeks a previous chat with the Stephen Boyd of our generation, the advertising maven, Mr. Rob Schwartz. That pre-COVID chat vibrated with so many of you, because I did say we were going to have in the middle in the middle of COVID, I call your name. Thank you, John. And thank you, Rob, for being with us again. I am out in Trancas, so you'll excuse me if I sound slightly loopy. This is America. Let me just kick off with this. I watched Rachel Maddow last night because I'm determined to steal her from Susan one day. And to watch her, I come from a school where I think that Republicans will kill for what they want or have others do their bidding and people get killed. And... Democrats won't. A situation that manifests itself so that Donnie might be in the towers again in 2024. Meanwhile, out here in what I believe is Democrat bill, I see rich grannies with electric cars trying to teach their children card games in Trankers. I see every male with a beard 
a hoodie and a young child looks like Chris somebody from all those fucking Marvel movies. Any woman who's reasonably slim or tall looks like an actress I can't remember. Well, what are they doing about America? America is struggling. We're just struggling. We're, we're, we're too busy, like you say, uh, schlepping around our grandkids and showing them things on the iPad and uh, juicing up our electric cars. We're not really paying attention. Well, you know, I, I went at a wonderful Italian meal last night. On the way in, by the way, the queues by the migrant workers for the buses was at such... You remember, I'm a poor boy from South America, man. We're all poor there, right? Well, unless you run the country. But I'm in kind of culture shock here. Anyway, the, the waiter asked him, where can I get a decent espresso in the morning? And he said, I don't know. I live two and a half hours from here. Wow. Yeah, well, it, it, it's the two Americas... You know, and it's not just the red and the blue, it's the, the haves and the have-nots. You know, for such a wealthy country, we're not looking after each other. And I think that's really the biggest problem. It's this, uh, this income inequality that is going to be our undoing. Capitalism eating itself, as the communists once predicted. Well, you know, I've said in closed circles, but now I'll say everywhere, I, I regard America as basically fair game for the Taliban since you mm. haven't had real food for 40 years. You're <laughs> wilting. Yeah, it's alarming. I live in New York City, so on the one hand, it's quite the bubble. I mean, we're seeing progress on the pandemic. You know, I live here uh, downtown right near Union Square. Without the masks, you would think it's, uh, you know, everybody's partying like it's uh, 21-9 again. And people are out and about and having fun. But when you go up to Midtown, it gets quiet. You would swear that between the streets, you were seeing tumbleweed blowing. Friends have shared that image, like of Midtown, 34th Street, whatever. I mean, that whole thing that it still feels like a ghost town to them. And then, you know, with or without the masks, there was a Black Keys concert in Atlanta where mm. they had dogs obviously taken off drug duties, sniffer dogs. I mean, oh, okay, a bit. It was only an audience of 600. But while I'm in Anizuma this week, there are two shows here in L.A. The Rolling Stones are doing two. And the Eagles, um, ironically, I, I was invited to the Eagles, you know, but thus far, not the other one. <laughs> I wonder why. But anyway, that's, uh, that's what you get for loving me. But I wouldn't go. You know, I'm a Hepsi survivor. I question every day how much of the corners of my organs the treatment actually got. So I still treat my liver as if I have Hepsi. I smoked for a lot of stuff <laughs> for 35 years. You know, I mean, why risk? I saw a little footage, Rob, the other day from Nashville of the Rolling Stones. The footage was of young people, more so than I've seen. But, but, like, all right, coming around to the, the bigger question before we get to our latest nominee for sainthood, Paul McCartney. Um, <laughs> really, man, what was going on there? I mean, I have never slagged Paul McCartney, but I may be about to. Never mind what he said about the Rolling Stones. By the way, viewers and readers, that article will be available to you. So if you haven't already read it in the New York, you know what we're talking about. But okay, but let's just go to America, New York, and advertising. And let me lead you in with a couple of things that I've seen. That kind of one was from Marriott. Okay, a great multiracial ad, including those bibs that the Muslims wear. I'm not trying to insult anybody, burkas, I can't remember the name. The way you cover your gorgeous faces, right? Um, they're in there. But the slogan, travel makes us whole again. Hmm. That's interesting. 
The other one, on my way from Vancouver to Colombia last year, I went Air Mexico, which I really had doubts about doing, but it was fine. But they had a great commercial that said, we cannot smile at you with our mouths because of the masks, but we can always smile at you with our hearts. Mm. That's quite good. Yeah. So what is the shake-up? How has your world changed in terms of the way that we really know that people have changed? Great question. I think that the thing that's really changed that I'm noticing is the gusto or lack thereof with brands. There's a trepidation and there's one trepidation that's economic. So do we go out there and promote our stuff knowing that we've got supply chain issues? Do we go out there, promote our stuff, trepidatious that maybe the buyers aren't buying? And then there's the fear of how can we not offend anybody? Those are the two dynamics, I think, that are inhibiting, I think, a lot of the creativity. What, what, what I find fascinating is that you've pulled out two pieces that actually are fairly creative, especially the Aeromexico one. Uh, has a nice observation, has a nice piece of poetry that would make you remember them. But we have a lot of conversations about not offending. And of course, the best advertising swaggers up and gives you a point of view. And, you know, we remember Levy's Jewish rye bread. You know, we remember when Nike goes out there and says, I'm not a role model. When advertising and brands have swagger, we remember. But now we live in a culture that is swaggerless and inhibiting the swagger. Well, isn't it then time for the copywriters to return to when swagger was new and swagger was not an entitlement? Because we're almost in virgin territory again. I I feel that's coming. If you think about Mad Men and this wasp culture, advertising got interesting when the Italians and the Greeks and the Jews showed up. When the barbarians at the gate got into the gate and started doing work, that's when advertising got interesting. That's when you saw Volkswagen think small and lemon And you had this eruption of creativity with what we call the creative revolution. Well, I think what you're hitting on is that it is time for revolution 2.0. And I think it's going to come from places we don't expect. In different places, different platforms, I'm seeing interesting things on TikTok, and it's not coming from the same old suspects. And that's what I'm hoping is, is going to happen next for the business. With the people that you get to choose the work of, to, to go with, to get slogans, to communicate visuals and ideas. Since we've been all celebrities, since we had cell phones and we had social media, have we basically had a contraceptive around our minds? And also, how many people in the last 20 years have you dealt with who come in and you go, wait a minute, you don't speak English, never mind write it. Well, I think what's, what's happening now is the talent is not necessarily running to the agencies. So we've got to go out and find the talent. And what I like about this is that we're going to find some people from unexpected places on TikTok who didn't realize that they could do this for a living. So that's where I'm very hopeful that we're going to find some fresh voices, fresh thinking, and get the swagger back. Because I think people who are trained in advertising, who have gone to school for advertising, they're going to be too timid. They're going to overthink it. It's like sending your kid to be a guitar player at the Berkeley School of Music. So in other words, these two boats, the people who are training for the advertising profession and the actual advertising profession are going to miss each other in the night. That's good. I I think there there are a couple of the graybeards like me, if you're lucky enough to still be around, because of course there's 
rampant ageism in advertising. But if you're still lucky enough to be around, my colleagues and I of a certain age, we're kind of looking around going, ooh, this is quite interesting. You know, and we'll be able to take something raw, which is, listen, what, what you did as a producer, see the raw material and go, ah, I think I have an interesting vision for this. You know, this is what I think is really powerful. You know, I, I, was, I was writing to you earlier just about some of these documentaries. And, you know, when you look at this new Velvet Underground one, this collision of Andy Warhol seeing something in Lou Reed and his friends, there's a collision there. Someone who has a little bit of a vision with talent. And I've always, that's what I've always admired about you. You saw something in these lads and you thought, maybe it's over here, guys. So have you seen the, the Velvet Underground documentary? Not yet. Only the thriller. See, I have said, this will sound... No, that's how strange. You'll get it totally. I found that whole thing at the time. And interestingly, at the moment, I'm doing things with the surviving son of Nico, right? Making sure that the work his mother did is accounted for, et cetera. But I found the whole Andy Warhol thing at that time totally scary. And I went, "Uh uh-oh, keep me out of this, man. The only time Andy Warhol was acceptable to me was when I ran into him outside uh, an Olivia Newton-John concert at Lincoln Center. Oh, my God. It's priceless. That's how middle of the road basically everybody is if you take the drugs away. But again, you were living in it. I'm just a little bit younger than you, so I get to see it through kind of candy-colored glaze. Well, look at Malcolm McLaren. You know, look at Brian Epstein. Look at Andrew. You know, look at Andy Warhol. These guys helped architect these artists. That's how I get exposed to it. Yeah, it's funny that I could only do that job with the Rolling Stones at a certain ascent until a certain mountain that they reached. But when faced with the Velvet Underground and that, I was looking at them going, my God, these people are on smack already. <laughs> You know, yeah, and, and, I, and I imagine too, because you know, I played some of the music for my wife because she was not a, a Velvet Underground fan, and she found a lot of it very unlistenable. Yeah, and I think if you have context, you you know what to listen for. But just hearing it raw, she was just sort of like, "Oh, I, I'm I'm not sure about that." Well, some form of homeopathic smack would help ease <laughs> the moment in. And Malcolm McLaren, interesting that you mentioned him because I was talking to somebody the other day and saying I think he topped himself. Basically, he was a solo guy. He had this severe cancer. Mm. Euthanasia was available, and he slipped away so quietly, he might have taken the sensible way out. Well, you know, I'm looking at this through the eyes of a creative director. So that's why when I lumped you guys into this sentence, it's you guys as creative directors, you as a creative force, creative director of this band. And that's what I think is what was happening now when I look at TikTok talent. I'm looking at it as a creative person going, okay, how can we morph this or move this into organized messaging? Is there a race, a denomination, an income class that as you open the door are the first people to recognize that it's open? As soon as you raise that question, I immediately go to something like, Slumdog Millionaire. When you think about that film, and I think particularly for a lot of Yanks, it was kind of the first time where they went, oh, this interesting Indian culture. Yep. You know, and I think again, if I link it back to some of what I know about your life, you know, the influence of, say, Indian culture in mid to late 60s England, this becomes, oh, this is an interesting force, interesting energy. And I think, I don't know whether this is good coming from Southern Asia, 
I think is something that it might just be happening organically. Maybe some Southern Indian influences uh, in the worlds of you know, comedy and, and then just seeing it on TikTok. Because they're different beats. You know, they're different visuals. And I think that's what I'm finding energizing. Do you think that the length of time that people have to spend, quote, being educated is stopping young talent getting out on the street and, say, getting to your doors or other things, and by the time they're 24 or 26, they might be wanked out? Maybe so. There's something about underthinking versus overthinking that there's energy in underthinking. And I think with some of these kids, I mean, I see it in my own children, they run through the consequences. They've been playing chess too long. And we need more backgammon. Strategy, but happenstance, is also something to deal with versus chess, where you're really trying to control every move. I picked up a magazine, which I really suggest you try and get. It's called Easy Riders. Right. This is volume two of Easy Riders. And it's motorbikes and motorbike people and designers who just like to bike. And I'm getting such good verbal ammunition from it that even with a hip replacement and a femur break, I'm going, I want to learn how to go on a bike before it's too late. I know that won't happen, but I will be able to put my mind in the place. But it is wonderful how a magazine can take you there. It's got some. It's got some great copy in it too, Rob. Very good. Just so you know, I, I am a motorcycle dreamer, just like you. I don't get on them, but I love them, and I watch a lot of TikTok motorcycle content. So if you're in this dream mode of dreaming about riding a bike, uh, there's plenty of. Just look up how to ride a motorcycle, and you'll start. And they put you point of view camera, these wonderful GoPro cameras, and it's as though you are riding, and you'll learn the whole subculture. It's, Really, and TikTok, which I've never gone to because there were too many people warning me about the conspiracy of it. Well, well, YouTube's got the motorcycle content. TikTok is that's different content. I haven't done any motorcycle content on TikTok. Okay, the Rolling Stones. I I could be wrong, but I regard them in England as a fact, and in America as a myth. Well, you know, it is like the Rat Pack. You've only got Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis left, and I don't I don't know if you saw the picture of them getting off at. um, Maybe it was even John Wayne. No, it was Burbank. I do love John Wayne Airport, don't you? I think it's great. I remember when we used to laugh at Milton Berle. You know, I mean, the guitar is only the difference for such a cynic as I. I hadn't put together the Stones and Rat Pack, but that is very good. But the Rat Pack, they were in on the joke. (laughs) Well, then, therefore, it's not being rude to the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's in its own way, it's a compliment if you get it, as you do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that. I like your your observation of myth and fact. I think that there was, as an American fan, quite a bit of mythology about the Stones. You know, especially when the early bits about your moment of, you know, would you let your daughter marry a Rolling Stone? This became part of the mythology of this was the bad boy band versus the Beatles. So that, that mythology, I think a, a lot of us were really attracted to. And I feel the myth you could ride along, you know, and especially when you, you know, the exile on Main Street mythology, you could buy into that. And probably all the way right up into some girls. I'm thinking while you're talking, thinking of what my most recent concert experiences were 
with them, and it's not that recent, it's like 2005, is what happened that they continue to live the dream for you. You had to straighten up. I don't mean you specifically, but you know what I mean? Like, you had to get on with it, but the Rolling Stones didn't. Well, but they also grew. They grew into their luxury lifestyle, which became a whole, you know, a different kind of uh, mythology. And some of it's positive. I think a lot of people might deride it. But at the same time, they also showed us how to live with money. Really? I think so. I think in Mick's whole kind of, I don't know, his whole hanging out with various and sundry... Yeah, from Prince that point of view, yeah. rubbing wastes with Prince of Margaret, you know, I mean, like... Yeah, that's um, stuff, yeah. But, but then again, on that level, before this New Yorker article, well, the, you know, Paul McCartney, I thought that, because um, the Rolling Stones, for whatever the reasons were, keep having to do it. I find the fact that Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney are alive and standing up. That is the true miracle for me. Just to go back to Nick for one second that I think you'll you'll appreciate is uh, in the FT, there was recently a piece on how to wear sneakers with a suit. And uh, the writer mentioned the Bianca wedding and basically saying that Mick Jagger showed us how to wear sneakers with a suit. And by the way, uh, don't hide the sneakers. They should be conspicuously you know, trainers. They should not be kind of, you know, faux speakers. But back to your observation on uh, Ringo. Yeah, I mean, but I think that with the New Yorker article, what what was fascinating about that piece was just that Paul can't stop. The guy cannot stop making music. It's amazing, especially the whole idea of tents and concrete. (laughs) Like in East Hampton, is that the disease that finally got him? (laughs) I don't know. And you, you have people really enjoying it. You know, I, I was thinking as I'm reading that article, look at Springsteen and you go back to your Rat Pack analogy. He put the life, he put the uh, discography uh, on stage. We watch the Bruce narrative on stage. Oh, you mean the Broadway thing? The Broadway, yeah. Yeah. And it's compelling. I sat in the audience going, oh my God. Oh, this yeah, okay, is- uh, okay, you saw it. I, I don't know how I could go and see it without thinking of Sam Shepard or John Garfield. By the way, Sam Shepard would play Bruce really well. Yeah, but that's, I I don't know. Ringo is an amazing miracle. But McCartney, I don't get it, man. You know, it's this constant correcting and dishing of John Lennon. I I remember in one thing where he, um, about 20 years ago almost, Christmas in England was bookmarked by documentaries on Brian Epstein as opposed to The Sound of Music. And there are all these gay gentlemen from Manchester and Liverpool with their arms on marble mantelpieces telling you what Brian was really like. And at one stage during the program, Paul McCartney said, well, he liked me too, (laughs) which I thought was just desperate, wonderfully desperate. His version of Love is Strange did uh, the Mickey and Sylvia record on his first solo album, did the world such a service, and his music does the world, and his shows do the world such a service. I hope that, I mean, I find the reading of that garbage, um, I hope it doesn't, Detracts from the main event, which is his music. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I can't help but think the um, the need to be loved. Does it come back to his mother dying at a young age? Not to be, you know, armchair Freud's here, but he wants to be loved, and that's why he can't help himself. I think it's more than mother here, Rob. You know, it's more than mother. He comes from an English culture that basically says, "Get over it, get on with it." Yeah, and he's not so. doing so at the moment. And there's one great thing in the art. Well, we haven't got to what he said about the Rolling Stones, which kind of 
almost what's he got vascular dementia you know he hasn't heard miss you he hasn't heard that disco period or their um or as somebody on twitter kindly said to me a version of cool uh she's so cool karma collected cool karma collected and something happened to me yesterday from mm. between the buttons and said this is blues you know this oh, is yeah. just a great record you know but, um hundred hundred years ago off a uh, goat's head soup with just mick and piano that's spectacular. Well, that's just reminding me. When we were talking about the advertising possibilities, the ad and the slogan that was going through my brain was that very clever slogan that's lasted so many years for the Patek Philippe watches, but it, the, but it not being yours. You only guard this for another generation. But the slogan that makes you have to think about more than yourself and the world at the moment has got us in a box where we are only thinking about ourselves. Without question. You've got a responsibility, Rob, I think, with the messages and the opportunity to move the game forward. No, listen, I, I'm with you. And, and it just reminds me, though, can we live in a world where all you need is love doesn't get scorned? You know, because this moment, it's a very interesting moment because you're making the call for unity and kind of the better angels of our nature but the moment itself is just so divisive and i almost hear the you know more street fighting man in the streets than all you need is love and th there's this kind of an interesting tension there i was queuing which i hate doing for an espresso on again on pacific coast where i was right yesterday and the three people in front of me seemed either over friendly with the barista or mm. so desperate for a conversation. I mean, there was a tone level to, how are you today? You know, That's I, mean, I love that. <laughs> how much of this is our friends at the media? The, the Daily Mail versus the truth. The New York Post versus the truth. As you were saying, Rachel Maddow versus Tucker Carlson. You know, if that's where you're getting your view of the world, that's not going to help. And that may not be reality. I think you and I are very glad that we are very blessed that we grew up on three networks with the likes of Harry Reasoner and just the mere fact that a politician will thank Anderson Cooper for having him on his show with the emphasis on the word show. The, the news trough feeds to opinions we've already formed that we are right about. But in all different forms, the world, our world was better off when, I hate to say this, but when the Mau Mau tragedies in Kenya got five lines in the Telegraph. This other stuff that is out of our control, because the world, the, the barbarism of the world will not change. While I was in my hammock for 11 months in Colombia, the last 11 months, I read two books. Uh, one, Open Wounds of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano, a guy from Uruguay, written in 1970. And I, I couldn't finish it because the volume line it was so disgusting. The bottom line was that whatever the people who first arrived in the Americas did, after they finished pillaging and raping and doing whatever they did to everybody who was actually here, they settled the land and they lived on it. And we got America. America is a great idea. We are realizing recently what, in fact, unfortunately, what a young democracy it is. And it is like a teenager on skids at the moment. But Latin America is worse from yes. the point of view that all what Latin America did over the last 500 years, the first 300 of that, was it stopped Europe going bankrupt. That, Latin America got no benefit from the rape and pillage and the robbing of the minerals or someone 
doing a ginseng field, knowing that that land could not be used for another 20 years. And I just see a direct connection to that and the queues for the buses I saw on the Pacific Coast Highway last night as I went to have an Italian dinner. And it is frightening. We can't be great until almost all of us can be great. You know, not everybody's going to make it, but we got to try. We got to get more people. What you said about is the peace and love. You see, the transition from peace and love is not working. One of the reasons that it didn't work is that the the people who've been practicing peace and love suddenly had enough money to move on. From peace and love to profit. Yeah, exactly. So we have got to live for today because otherwise a lot of people will give up if they don't, you know, a long-range forecast is just not possible. And to do what one can, making sure you don't leave luggage behind when you depart this coil, I'm fascinated by the work that you have to do now because there's an underbelly and it's a beautiful responsibility that you have. I think that's just it. We have to do all that we can. What was that? Uh, I forget. I think it's a Methodist concept. We have to do all that we can for as many as we can, for as long as we can. There's a beautiful idea there. And those who have more have to try to do more. I don't know. I don't know where else there is. What else is there if there's not us? If it's just me versus we. Right. That's not a life. The reward of giving, that needs to be sold. People need to understand that giving is actually more satisfying than getting. It is. Look at your dog. Dogs <laughs> teach us everything, man. Really. Yeah. You know, uh, I have five waiting for me back in Latin America, man, you know, and they have better manners than most of the people I run across. That, yeah, you could say, Andrew, then it's the company you pick. <laughs> no, I think any more of us attempting to describe America will be sinking into a Montgomery Cliff movie. I think we've got some very salient points. I know that having this chat with you reminds me of many things that I have to be about on a day-to-day basis, and I hope that this sharing has done the same for you. Absolutely. Andrew, you always always give me energy, and I always feel like, damn, that guy gives me good ideas. So I appreciate it. Oh, great. Thank you very much for that. Rob, have a great day every day. You too. Great to see you. Well, thank you, Rob. Thank you for helping us uh, get into present time, as L. Ron Hubbard used to put it so uh, aptly. Please go for the show notes to our YouTube audiovisual companion playlist. You can get more episodes of Sounds and Vision by going to soundsandvision.net and by subscribing to this pod chat in your favorite podcast feed. You can reach me at Instagram or Twitter by finding out Lou Gold and Facebook by going to facebook.com slash how are you dear slash Andrew Luke Oldham. The show was produced for you by Mr. Craig Snyder. The audio design was by Mr. Michael Donaldson and nothing was done by John Cleese. Sounds and Vision is a production. We don't need 82-year-old wankers in blazers and shirts that make out they play golf or tennis, just cavorting on. I mean, I saw him in Vancouver a couple, two or three years ago, and this guy's been an exile from life for so long, I just wish he would cave in. He didn't make me laugh as much 
as he might have had I stayed in Britain. Whatever. Sounds and Vision is a production of Because Entertainment. God bless Ringo, God bless Paul, and God bless all of you. Love the one you're with, which is you. Because if you don't love you, you don't have the capacity to pass it on Bessel. Ciao.